This morning's scripture reading is taken from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 to 25. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against the soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of the foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For, for what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. May God help us obey his words. Thanks, Eve. Thanks, Eve, for reading scripture for us. Uh, good morning, everyone. So good to be with you this morning. Uh, I was just really encouraged by the singing, so thank you for singing well and encouraging one another as you sing to one another. So let's pray that that continues and that we continue to sing praises to God in that way. So thank, thank you for doing that. Let me pray for us, and then we'll dive into God's Word together. Let's all pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us, strengthen us, encourage our hearts, help us to see Christ, that we would turn to him and find our rest and satisfaction in him. Build us up, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Is Christianity good for the world? Is Christianity good for the world? What do you all think? Thank you for that. Well, actually, many would say no. <laughs> the testimony of history is mixed at best. You know, terrible things have happened and been done in the name of Christianity. You, know, you have the Crusades, imperialist colonialism, racism, slavery. Now, even closer to home, I think most of us can recall bad experiences that we've had with people who call themselves Christians. You know, let me give you an example. My, my friend, he used to work in a company where the boss said that she was Christian, and she treated her employees so badly that my friend was embarrassed to call himself a Christian in the workplace because he just didn't want to kind of be associated with that. You know, what about ourselves? You know, is, is our Christianity merely talk without action? 
You know, maybe you've heard this uh, complaint before. You know, Christians are hypocrites. You know, this is often given as a reason for why someone doesn't become a Christian. You know, hypocrites are people who say one thing and yet do something else. You know, we, we can say God is love, but we gossip and we say hurtful things about others. You know, we say we worship God alone, you know, but do we chase after worldly success as though all our happiness and security are found in the things of this world? You know, we say God is good, but if God is good, then, then why don't our marriages, why, why don't our families, why don't our careers look different from the world? Now, religious hypocrisy is not a new problem, it's a really old one. You know, listen to what Isaiah says about, or rather what God says through his prophet Isaiah about his people Israel in the Old Testament. You know, they were very religious, so they came and worshipped God regularly, but this is what God says to them. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls, of lambs, of goats. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. This is part three of our three-part sermon series uh, entitled Believe, Belong, and Behave. Now, these are three inseparable parts or aspects of our biblical discipleship, you know, believing, belonging, and behaving. We, we, you know, we can't have one without the others. We must know Jesus, believe in the gospel, and God gathers us into his people so that we belong. And today we look at how behaving is a necessary outcome of believing and belonging. Well, Scripture is very clear. We're saved by faith alone in Christ alone. But true saving faith, you know, true saving faith is never alone. It always produces the fruit of a transformed life and good works. It is not legalistic to insist on good works. It's not moralism to insist on obedience. You know, we heard this from Ephesians 2 last Sunday, right? We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're not saved by good works, but we're saved for good works. So if we call ourselves Christians, then we must realize that it is not enough to simply say we believe. It is not enough to just externally belong to a church. Church membership never saved anyone. Faith without works is dead, James tells us. You know, believing in Jesus means trusting in Him as Savior, but also obeying Him as Lord. You know, in our text, in, in 1 Peter 2, Peter urges Christians towards obeying Jesus and good works. You know, why? Look at verse 9. Because this is what we're saved for. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that, you know, that's, that's the purpose statement there in verse 9, so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, how, how do we proclaim the excellencies of God who has saved us? How does that happen? We proclaim Christ by speaking of him in the world, and we proclaim Christ by behaving like him in the world. Now, Acts 11 tells us that the, the followers of Jesus were first called Christians in Antioch. You know, you know, you know what Christian means? You know, the, 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 the unbelievers in Antioch were insulting these people for following Jesus. They, they, they called them Christians, meaning little Christ. They were kind of making fun of these disciples of Jesus. Hey, you know, you guys are really funny. You, you live like this person who died and claimed that he rose again, right? You all live like him. I think we'll just call you little Christ, Christians. So it was meant to be a, a, a derogatory term for these followers of Jesus in Antioch. But, but what an amazing compliment it is for those of us who really follow Jesus. 
know, what, what better name for followers of Jesus than to be called little Christs in the world? And why do, we call, why, do Christ, why do people call us little Christ? It's because we live like Him in the world. I think there's no higher compliment that can be paid to a follower of Jesus than to be called a little Christ. Do people see Christ in us you know, as they see how we live in the world? You know, how, how should we behave like Jesus in the world? Three things for us to think about today. Number one, know who we are. Know who we are. You see that in verse 11. You know, when we meet someone, usually, what's the second question we ask them? You know, first question is usually, what's your name? What's the second question we ask them? What do you do? Right? That's a common question we ask someone, you know, what do you do? You know, nothing wrong with that, but it often it reveals that we often think about identity in terms of what we do. You know, are you a student? Are you a stay-at-home mom? Uh, are you retired? Are you working in such and such a place? You know, what do we do? And in a place like Singapore, you know, it's not just what we do that shapes our identity, but in a place like this, it's how well we do it that I think more importantly shapes our identity. We, we build our identities around our careers, uh, the happiness of our marriages, how our children turn out, uh, maybe even how exotic our holidays are. Now, this is why we call unsuccessful people nobodies, right? Now, we call them nobodies because they, they have no identity in a sense, because they're not successful. Have you ever wondered where we find our own identity? Is it in what we do? Is it in how well we do something? Now, for me, I think a, a good way to see how, where I put my identity is to check what I post on social media. <laughs> right, just check your Facebook post over the past six months. You know. What are you posting about? What do you really care about? I mean, that often shows what you're building your identity around. Just, just check your social media posts. Now, when it comes to identity, the, the Bible doesn't begin with what we do, but with whom we belong to. Look, look again at verse 11. Peter calls Christians beloved. Beloved. You know, Peter's not just saying that, hey, I love you guys. You know, you guys are great. So Peter's not just saying that. Peter's calling them beloved because they are loved not just by Peter, but they are loved by God. They're loved by God. And they're loved by God not because of anything that they've done. You know, God has set His love on these believers because of what Christ has done for them. God loves His Son, and because we believe into His Son, we're joined to Him, united to Him by faith, God loves us as well, because we are hidden in His Son. So this is who we are, we're beloved. You know, what a wonderful thing. You know, every morning you wake up, look at yourself in the mirror, and say, I am loved by God. You know, what a good way to start your day every day. I am loved by God, whatever happens to me today, you know, good times, bad times, I can say that I am loved by God. Even, you know, even if I struggle with sin, I am loved by God. Now, we're often tempted to conform to the world you know, because we want to fit in. Fitting in is one way of gaining kind of credibility in this world. You know, we try to find our identity in the things of this world. You know, we, we worry about what others think of us. Maybe it's your boss, maybe it's your parents, maybe it's your peers, people you've uh, gone to school with. You know, we worry about other, what others think of us and we constantly crave approval. You know, but Peter reminds us, right? We are loved by God. We tell ourselves that. We are loved by God. We, we don't have to prove ourselves because we already have God's full approval and acceptance in Christ. Now, this gives us the confidence and courage to live differently in the world because we already have assured assurance of God's love. And because we are God's beloved, Peter goes on to say, we, we are also sojourners and exiles in the world. We, we don't belong here because we belong to God. Like Israel in the Old Testament, we, we're journeying, we're on a journey, to our promised land. And our promised land is not a piece of real estate in Palestine, Canaan. You know, our promised land is God Himself. 
You know, God is our inheritance. God is the one who waits for us, who longs to bring us home to be with Him. That, that's our promised land. We, we, one day we will enjoy Him forever in the new heavens and the new earth. And therefore we are sojourners and exiles now because we don't belong here. And we need to tell ourselves this truth, that, that we are loved by God and that we have hope in Him, hope in Christ. And we're looking forward to something far better, far, far better than anything this world can ever offer us. And because of this, brings us to our second point, we are called to do good while suffering for it. You know, we see this in verses 11 to 20. You know, when Peter talks about doing good, he, he talks about doing good in you know, these two aspects, doing good internally and doing good externally. So, so let's look first at you know, doing good internally. You know, Peter says in verse 11 that this war is waging, not outside of us, but inside of us. You know, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. You know, when we believe in Jesus, He gives us new hearts, gives us new desires, but while we live in this fallen world, we will still have sinful desires that continually draw us away from God, that, that, that lure our hearts away from God. You know, as we just sung in, in that song, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. This is true for every one of us. You know, even, even if you've been a Christian for years, there, there's still these desires of the flesh that tempt your heart away from God. There's a struggle that goes on in our hearts. Worldliness is not just a problem that's outside of us. So, so we, can't, we, we can't avoid worldliness by living like hermits, right? We, we can't avoid worldliness by just retreating into a cloister and living like a monk. I mean, that doesn't work. Why? Because worldliness is something that goes on in our hearts as well. Our hearts, inside of us, we struggle with worldliness. It's not just an external problem. So Peter has to encourage us. You know, keep turning away. Abstain. You know, it's in present continuous tense. Not just once, not just when you first became a Christian, but keep turning away from these fleshly desires that tempt you away from God, from, from these fleshly desires that promise much but deliver little. And indeed, these fleshly desires lead to death. They wage war against our soul. They, these fleshly desires, the, 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 the end of these fleshly desires is our destruction. And so Peter says, keep turning. Keep turning. Continually turn away from them. You know, it's helpful to understand how sin works in our lives, right? We never fall into serious sin suddenly. Just one morning, you wake up and say, oh, you know, I'm going to commit adultery today, so I'm going to sleep with someone else. No, it ne never happens like that, right? Sin, sin draws us away, not suddenly. We don't make 90-degree turns or 180-degree turns. Sin, sin, turns us, sin turns our hearts away by degrees, right? I, I'm standing facing you. Next day, I'm like that, right? Just a few degrees at a time, you know, over time. You know, just a matter of degrees. And before you know it, I'm, I've turned the other way around. That's why it's present continuous tense. Keep turning away. Every day, every morning, every afternoon, every evening, keep turning away. These fleshy desires wage war against our souls. And it's a war that doesn't cease until the day we are with Christ in glory. The Christian life is one of continual repentance. Not just once-off repentance when we first become Christians, but continual repentance. This daily, moment-by-moment moment turning away from sin and turning to God through the mercy of Christ. You know, in, in this way, this is a form of doing good while suffering for it. You know, we were called to continual self-denial and the continual taking up of our cross. You know, that's what repentance is. It's denying ourselves, taking up our cross and follow Jesus. And this happens all the time in the Christian life. We're meant to do good in this way while suffering for it. You ask, so what? If, you know, if, if the Christian life is so hard, why, why doesn't Jesus just take us out of the world, right? 
you know, why does he leave us here and, and kind of make us go through this struggle of continually turning away from sin? You know, it's hard. You know, listen to what Jesus prays for us in John 17. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And, and then here, verse 18, is, is the reason why we're still here. Jesus says, this, this is what Jesus prays for us. As you sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. This is why we're not taken out yet. Jesus sends us into the world, not, not just in a disengaged way, but he sends us into the world to be salt and light. You know, salt is a, you know, salt is a pres preservative. I mean, we all know that, right? It preserves food. How does it work? In order for salt to work, it must be what? In contact with the food, with what you're trying to preserve. It, it doesn't work if you have food here and salt here and say, okay, great, you know, it's preserved. No, it doesn't work that way. You need to put salt onto the meat or onto the vegetable or whatever you're trying to preserve. Light is visible only when it shines in the darkness. This is why verse 12 in, in our text, Peter says we are to be among the Gentiles, among non-Christians, actively engaged with the non-Christians around us. We're meant to behave like Jesus wherever we are, to be actively engaged in our homes, in our families, be actively engaged in our neighbourhoods, the places where we live, be actively engaged in our schools, in our offices. And, and not just living in a, in a Christian bubble, but actively engaged with the non-Christians around us, getting to know them, spending time with them, you know, finding out who they are, how we can encourage them and help them. You know, this is what it means to connect our faith to every single aspect of our lives. You're not, not just being a Sunday Christian or doing things at church, but living out our faith in every single place where God's placed us. You know, I'm, I'm, I'll be the first to confess that I live in a Christian bubble. You know, for some reason, all my co-workers are Christians. I, I really struggle to find non-Christian co-workers and I think, I think this is one of the dangers of full-time ministry. You know, I, I live in a bubble. You know, I assume that everyone around me is Christian. You know, it's not a good place to be. Uh, so this happened you know, a few years ago, you know, I think about two years ago. My, my wife and I sat down and we were thinking, gosh, you know, we, we spend so much time with Christians. You know, we have CG, you know, I'm a pastor. You know, we meet people, we have people into our homes and most of them are Christians. And we realized, gosh, we, we, actually have, we actually give very little time to get to know non-Christians. We, we, we realize we've been living in this bubble where we just spend time with people who are just like us. So one of the things we did was, okay, we said, okay, we, we, let's, let's think about what we can do to, 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 do, to change things. So we decided to have an evangelistic Bible study in our home. That's the best decision ever. <laughs> so, so we just did it uh, for a couple of months. We actually told our CG that, hey, we're going to stop meeting as a CG, so we're going to take a break. And during this break, we were just have a Bible study in our homes for non-Christians. And that was fantastic. You know, we had non-Christians coming to our home. We got to know them. That led to more relationships down the road. So this is something that we did to kind of get out of the bubble and into the world. Maybe there's something for you all to think about as well. You know, you know, just think about your week. How much time do you spend with Christians? How much time do you spend with non-Christians? You know, do, you, do you give enough time to, to spending with non-Christians to get to know them in a meaningful way? where you can actually begin to be salt in contact with the world, light that shines in lives that could be very, very dark. How much time do we spend? We need to, as a church, we need, we need to beware of having too many Christian programs and activities. You know, I'm always in favour of churches that actually do less, but do it well, and to give God's people time to spend with their relationships so that through these relationships in the world, they can shine like lights in the world. You know, I'm really encouraged. You know, if you look in your ministry guide, there are two little announcements to do evangelism. 
So, so let's use those as kind of lightning rods, right? I mean, we, we have platforms that are available for evangelism, you know, Tuesday night inquiry, Sunday uh, seekers class. I mean, let's really use those and, and bring people to them. I mean, the teams that run them, they're trying their best, but they can't invite everyone. They need our help to invite people here to hear the gospel. So spend time in the world. Get to know your friends and family well so that you have an opportunity to speak of Jesus to them. Really take advantage of these platforms that we have to bring the gospel into the lives of the people around us. And next, Peter goes on to speak specifically of two areas of life in which we are to do good in the world. The first area is how do we relate to the Tenghu, you know, the, the government, right? How do we relate to those in authority over us? Peter says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Now, Peter says, godliness, Christ-likeness means submission. You know, that, that, maybe that's not a common way to think about Christ-likeness. You know, but Christ-likeness means submission. You know, I, I know submission is not popular nowadays. You know, we want to exert our own independence. Authority can't be trusted. Why should I submit? No, but Peter says it's part of being like Christ. Submit. Submit. Be subject to every human institution, the, the authorities that God has placed over us in this world. The government, obvious one. The law of the land. Uh, the town council. So please don't throw rubbish out of your window. You know, guys, do your national service. Don't run away. You know, this is what it means, right, to submit to every human institution. It means being law-abiding citizens. For me, it means not driving over the speed limit and making sure I put my parking coupons. Right, being honest about declaring your income, paying your taxes, rendering to Caesar what is owed to Caesar. And this is what it means to be subject to every human institution. Those of you who are in business or, or those of you who are in positions of influence, you know, being ethical, in, in how you do your work, being ethical in your business practices. You know, those of us who have domestic helpers at home, how are we treating them? Are we ethical? Uh, do we treat them legally? Are we giving them time off from work? We, making sure that they have, they have rest. You know, these are just little examples of what it means to be subject to those in authority over us. But I would say that for, being, for Christians, being law-abiding is the minimum. You know, we should at least be law-abiding. But I think we, need, we can go deeper than that. You know, how do we respond in our hearts to the authority that God has placed over us? You know, if you want to get a pulse on how people really think about the government, just check you know, all the forums. You know, see what people are posting on the forums. There is a lot of anger and frustration, resentment, and bitterness in the hearts of people towards the government. Right? You know, every time an MRT breaks down, that grows even more. Right? What about us? You know, we, we wait 10 minutes for the train, do we talk about overthrowing the government in our hearts? Right? Is that what we're thinking? You know, it floods outside my house, I can't drive. You know, do we, we talk about, you know, do, we, do we respond with anger, frustration towards the powers that be? Now, what, what's going on in our hearts with regards to those in authority over us? You know, do we, do we engage in like coffee shop talk, right? Or taxi driver talk, right? You know, you've got to just bash the government all the time with what we say, right? There's no thankfulness in our hearts towards God who has placed government over us. You know, I'm not saying that we can't vote opposition. So don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that, you know, government's always right. But what, I'm, what I am saying is that I think God calls us to respond to Him with gratefulness in our hearts, even as we submit to those God has put in authority over us. You know, he wants our hearts to be filled with gratitude to Him for His goodness in giving us, giving us government. We're citizens of God's kingdom and also citizens of the kingdom of this world. You know, we're like the exiles in Jeremiah's day. You know, what, did, what did God tell the exiles in Jeremiah's day? Jeremiah 29, you know, seek the welfare of the city. 
seek the welfare of the city. Now, the prophet Micah exhorts us, do justice, love kindness. You know, Christians all through the ages have made a difference in society, not because they are powerful, but Christians all through the ages have made a difference simply by being Christ-like. You know, look, 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 listen to this quote from Rodney Stark, the sociologist Rodney Stark. He wrote this book, The Rise of Christianity. Here's what he says. To cities filled with the homeless and the impoverished, Christian, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, you know, that sounds a lot like Singapore, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemics, fires and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. You know, there's some stories of you know, the great fire in London, I think it's the 16... 66, everyone was fleeing, oh sorry, not the fire, actually the, the plague in the 17th century in, in London, the great plague, and many people were dying. Who remained? Oftentimes the pastors would remain to care for the sick, to make sure that proper funerals were being conducted. Christians stuck around, even as the city was emptying of people. I mean, this is the kind of witness, this is the kind of testimony that we've seen in history. What does it mean to seek the welfare of the city? How do we seek the welfare of our city? How do we seek the welfare of our city? You know, what, one study that a Christian friend of mine did with regards to social needs in Singapore, uh, she found after some studies, after talking to a number of NGOs, that the greatest need here is actually uh, child services to provide foster homes for children and adoption for children. You know, these are the greatest needs in a place like Singapore. It's actually not money. You know, the NGOs will say, hey, we got, we got funding. You know, that, that's okay. What we need is time. What we need is people. What we need is families to provide safe places for children in need, whether it's fostering or adoption. So where, where's God calling you in terms of doing good in this city? There are children in need, right, right here in our midst, even in here in this community, in this very neighbourhood. Some of them come in during the week for a reading club, and I'm so thankful for the reading club. You know, how, how do we get to know them, these children who come in? How, do we get, how, how can we get to know their families so that we can really do good to them and seek the welfare of our city? We don't have to start everything here in this church and start all the ministries here. Maybe we can also think about, are there opportunities that we can volunteer in this, in this community? You, know, you don't have to just start a ministry, but you can think about volunteering in platforms that are already there, that are already available for us to seek the welfare of the city. Now, submitting to the authorities doesn't mean doing whatever the state says. You know, Peter is very clear that our submission to the authorities is for the Lord's sake, for the Lord's sake. King Jesus is our ultimate authority, not Caesar. So if the state calls us to go against Christ and his word, we must be obeying God rather than man. If the state says to us that we can't speak of Jesus to those of other faiths, we need to obey God rather than man. If the state says that we need to endorse abortion, we need to obey God rather than man. The state calls us to endorse same-sex marriage. We need to obey God rather than man. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor who opposed the Nazis in the, during the Second World War, and he, he died in prison as a result of his convictions. This is what he said. Silence in the face of evil is itself evil. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. Now, our, our beliefs and practices will increasingly put us at odds with the world. 
we are right now, you know, Christians are seen as intolerant, bigoted, and small-minded. And it was no different for the early Christians in Peter's time. You know, the early Christians, what were they accused of? They were accused of uh, cannibalism. That was one good accusation. Why? Because they ate the body of Christ and drank his blood during communion. So they called cannibals. People, non-Christians looked at them and said, you guys do really strange things in your services. Early Christians were accused of atheism. You know, surprise, surprise. Why? Because they refused to worship Roman gods. So they saw them as atheists. And because they were atheists, early Christians were fodder for all kinds of accusations. Every time a, a disaster happened, every time there was a famine, who got the blame? Christians, because they refused to worship Roman gods. Now, Peter says here, right, people will speak all kinds of evil against Christians. There will be opposition as we live in this world. How should we respond? How should we respond? Reverend Sun, his name is Sun Yang Won. He was a Korean pastor who lived uh, about half a century ago. Uh, in, in 1948, armed gangs attacked the city in Korea where Reverend Sung lived with his family. Uh, Reverend Sun wasn't around at that time, but the, the armed gangs came. They found his sons. They, they dragged his two sons into the street, parading them throughout the city because they were Christians. They made fun of them. At the end, you know, towards the end, the, the armed gang uh, asked them, do you recant? You know, do you still want to follow Jesus? And the son said, yes. And they were shot on the spot. At the trial, Reverend Son stood and he faced the, the killers of his sons. And he forgave his son's murderers. In fact, he even adopted one of them. His name is Chai Sun. He adopted Chai Sun to be his son. What an amazing testimony of forgiveness. And Chai Sun grew up, he became a Christian, and later gave his life to serve Christ as a pastor. Now, this is what it means to be set free by Christ, right? Christ has set us free from the ways of this world. We don't have to respond in the way the world responds. As slaves of God, we have the freedom to live for the pleasure of our new master. This is God's will for us, verse 15. By doing good, we should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. There, there's no argument against a life transformed by the gospel. There's no argument against a transformed life. Now, the Roman Emperor Julian was opposed to Christianity in the 3rd century, but even he had to acknowledge this about Christians. You know, Julian said, it is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans, he's talking about Christians, care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. Even a non-Christian, even a pagan like Julian had to acknowledge that the Christians were doing good and helping even those who are not Christians in that society. So the second area that Peter looks at is our work. So we talked about government and society. Now let's think about work. How are we to behave like Jesus in our work? It's verses 18 to 20. Work is the second area where we're called to do good in the world. Peter says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Uh, the Bible calls us to, wait for it, submit to our bosses. <laughs> and it gets worse, right? Regardless of whether they are good or bad. You know, the Bible is very realistic, right? The Bible assumes that there will be bad bosses. The, the Bible is realistic about working life. The Bible says that having a tough day at work is normal. There will be good bosses and we will also have bad bosses, good and gentle ones, but also ones who are unjust. So how should we respond when our boss is unreasonable, when our boss has it in for us, when our boss treats us unfairly, passes us by, gives the promotion to someone else? How do we respond to such provocations in the world? 
Peter says, be subject. What does it mean to be subject to our bosses? It means to be faithful in our work. It means not slacking off, not bad-mouthing or gossiping against our bosses behind their backs. No, it means being faithful with what God has entrusted to us. If he's, if he's given to us this work to do, we do it well, with a clear conscience. That's what it means to be subject to our bosses. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that we should passively put up with abusive behaviour in the workplace. You know, we, up, we ought to uphold righteousness in the workplace. Well, for example, you know, sexual harassment has been in the news a lot. It happens in our workplaces all the time. You never put up with something like that. You know, seek recourse. Uphold righteousness in your workplace. If, if, you, if you are being sexually harassed, speak to someone. Uh, you know, take steps to put an end to such unrighteousness. You know, up, uphold justice. This one means to uphold justice in our workplaces. If you're a boss and you know of someone who's being harassed in this way, uphold justice in your workplace. But even as we uphold justice, we need to remember that we are upholding justice and not seeking revenge. And Peter tells us that God is pleased. God is pleased when we do good and we endure suffering. You know, he says it, it's a gracious thing in God's sight. It means that God sees and God knows and God helps. Remember, God is our ultimate master. We're, we're working for Him, not our boss and certainly not for ourselves. And God is glorified when we continue doing good, even as we are treated unjustly. You know, this is what it means to be subject to our masters with all respect. You know, the word respect is literally translated fear. Be subject to our masters with all fear. But Peter's not saying fear your masters. The word fear means the fear of God. He says be subject to your masters with all fear of God because the way we work is a, is a, is a part of how we worship God. Our work is part of our worship of God. Colossians 3, 23 and 24. Whatever you do, work heartily. As for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. You know, if you're working just for personal success or the approval of others, then, then I can guarantee that we will lose motivation sooner or later. You know, it's just not sustainable if we're just working for ourselves, if we're working for the approval of others. But if we're working for God's glory, we can persevere even when work is tough. Now, when we work for God, work will never be meaningless. When we work for God, work will never be without purpose because we know that we serve Him. Even the most mundane task can be done for the glory of God. You know, you know Peter was writing to servants, like the, the, the lowest in the pecking order of work. He's saying, even you, you know, the lowest of the pecking order, you can have satisfaction and joy at work. Why? Because you serve Christ. Even the smallest thing that you do can be done for the glory of God. You don't, you don't have to be a CEO. You don't have to like, accomplish great things in the world. You can simply be faithful in your work. And God is pleased. God is pleased. You know, that, that, that is reason to get up of bed on Monday mornings and head to work. It's because God is pleased by how we work for Him in this way. Onesimus was an unfaithful worker. You know, Onesimus ran away from his employer. But then Onesimus had an encounter with Christ, right? He, he came to know Jesus and he became a Christian. And after that, Onesimus decided to return to his boss and to do honest work. The, the Apostle Paul himself writes Onesimus a letter of recommendation to his former employer. Philemon. And Paul says about Onesimus, you know, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. You know, believing in Jesus should make a difference. Believing in Jesus should make a difference to how we work, even if our work situations don't change. We can still work differently for the glory of God. Now, does submitting to our bosses mean that we never leave a difficult job? You know, should, should, we, should we leave 
if, if work is hard, I don't think the Bible is saying that we need to remain forever in, in a difficult job. You know, one Corinth, you know, the Bible gives us liberty to find work elsewhere. You know, for example, in, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul advises slaves to gain their freedom if the opportunity arises. But if not, then we should continue to be faithful wherever God has placed us. You know, difficulties, such as a bad boss, don't necessarily mean that God isn't with us or, or it isn't God's will for us to be there. And we need to realize that God cares not only about what we do, but how we do it. You know, oftentimes, when we, when we think about finding God's will in our work, you know, maybe we're overly preoccupied with thinking about what job God wants us to do. But, but here in, in 1 Peter, Paul says, when we think about God's will for our work, God is not thinking primarily about the work that we do, what we do, what our job is. But, but God is thinking primarily about how we do our jobs. You know, how we are relating to, to the people around us in our workplaces. You know, God cares about how we work. And there are times, there are times when God calls us to remain in a tough situation so that we glorify Him. How? By learning patience, by learning what it means to endure while doing good. You know, God calls us to glorify Him, allowing us to remain in a difficult situation so that we tell of Jesus by how we work, by doing good and suffering for it. God, God stretches our faith in this way. You know, he teaches us humility. He teaches us patience and perseverance. And God walks with us through suffering in our workplaces in order to make us more like Jesus. Finally, walk in Jesus' footsteps. Point three. Walk in Jesus' footsteps. You know, why should we do good while suffering for it? You know, we live in a culture that, that tells us to assert our rights, to look out for ourselves, look out for number one. And the, the idea of doing good while suffering for it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. You know, this is foolishness in the eyes of the world. But this is precisely how we behave like Jesus in the world. You know, verse 21. Peter says, to this you have been called. Now, what's God's calling? This. To this you have been called. What, what's this? It's to follow Jesus' steps of enduring suffering while doing good. This is how we represent Jesus as little Christs. Following Jesus means that the path of our Christian lives will necessarily lead through the cross before it goes onward to glory. There is no crown without the cross. And when we suffer for doing good, it doesn't mean that God has failed us. When we suffer for doing good, it doesn't mean that God is far away or that He doesn't care. Indeed, when we suffer for doing good, Peter tells us that God is pleased. This is how we reflect Jesus in the world. God is at work. And He's using us to be living testimonies of Jesus in the world. We are most like Jesus when we humbly endure suffering while doing good. This is why we behave like Jesus in the world. We behave in this way because we want to proclaim His glory. We want to tell the world this is what He's like. Our words tell of His gospel and our lives display that same gospel by reflecting the character of Christ. His love, His patience, His humility, and His trust. Look at verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You know, I realize that this is a huge ask, right? I'm calling us to suffer while doing good. This is a huge, huge ask of each one of us. How are we able to do this? You know, how are we able to live in this way that seems so Countercultural that they seem so alien to the culture in which we live. How are we able to do this? The good news of the gospel is that Jesus is not only our example, but he's our savior. And he must be our savior before he can be our example. Look at verse 24. He bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might 
die to sin and live to righteousness. You know, we, because of Jesus, we've died to ourselves. We, we no longer live for ourselves because the, the bondage that we have to ourselves, to our sin, has been broken by Jesus Christ. We are free. That's why Peter says, live as those who are free, free from the bondage to ourselves, free from having to live for our own little desires and selfish pleasures. We are set free from that by Jesus. He's given us the power to live differently in this world, not because we have that power in and of ourselves, but because He has given us that power by His death on the cross and by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus is the suffering servant who has healed us by His wounds. Our sins are washed away. Believing in Jesus gives us the power to live a new life. He's the good shepherd who has gathered lost sheep like us back to God so that we believe belong and behave. For Christianity to be good for the world, then those who believe in Jesus must declare the glory of our Saviour and our Lord. Our words must tell of Him. Our lives should reflect how He is in this world. And He gives us the power to do that by His death and resurrection. We trust Him. Trust Him and live for Him in this way. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank You for Jesus. We thank You that He is the Good Shepherd. He is the suffering servant who has come, who has laid down His life for us so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Father, we thank You that You have given us faith to believe. We thank You that You have gathered us so that we belong as your people. And Father, we do ask humbly that you would help us to behave in this world in ways that bring you glory. We pray that our lives uh, would reflect the character of Christ. We pray that the way we relate to others in society, we pray that we, the way we work in our jobs would truly speak of Jesus. Help us, Father, we pray. Help us to be good for this city, to point people in this city to you, the only God, the only Savior for sinners. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.